So before we really get into the meat of the word today, I, I just want to uh, start off by explaining how most of the time Easter services at church are geared towards guests. But I'm going to do something different this year because I, never, I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't learn this stuff. I just kind of just kind of do what I see in Scripture. Sometimes I, I interpret it incorrectly. But I'm going to uh, gear the message today not towards the guests. So guests, would you please forgive me? I'm going to gear the message towards the people who are here week in and week out. Now, why am I saying this? It's because as guests today, if you're a guest today, there might be some slightly uncomfortable moments for you. Understand my heart in this as I'm not talking to you as guests. I'm talking to those who call this their church home. And if the guests will hang with me through the uncomfortable moments, you will see why at the end it's so important. And so I guess in a roundabout way, it will affect the guests. Easter is a great time of year. It is the premier Christian holiday. Okay? It is the pinnacle of our calendar. Christmas is not. Easter Sunday in most churches in this country is the, is the most well-attended Sunday of the calendar year. Can you guess why? Here's why. Because Jesus said to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him, and that was in the Passover week, and Easter is an extension of the Passover. That's what He said to do to remember Him. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. I'm just saying it's right that this is such a big deal inside the church. Jesus told us to remember him via the sacrifice on Calvary's cross. He had to be born, I get it. But being born, he saved no one. Dying, he made the, the pathway to God open. Now, I want you to understand something. In my opinion, as I study the scriptures, Good Friday was really the pinnacle of it all. As he breathed up his last breath and he said, it is finished. That is the pinnacle of it all. Paul says that in one of his epistles. He said, I endeavored to know nothing when I was with you except for Christ and him crucified. And all the time I have... Christians tack on and resurrected. No, Paul didn't say that. He said, I endeavor to know nothing when I was with you except for Christ and him crucified. The resurrection is not the power. The resurrection is proof of the power. Can I get a witness? Amen. Okay. I'm not saying the resurrection is not important. I'm saying the resurrection proved the sacrifice worked. It was the sacrifice that redeemed us. Scripture tells us in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Paul uses the resurrection to say, if Christ was raised, then too shall you be raised. Proving that what Jesus did on the cross worked. This symbol hanging on this wall that we look at as a symbol of hope which was actually the most cruel torture device ever invented, 
and did not appear in Christian artwork until after everybody who had ever seen one actually used was dead. Okay, this wasn't the original symbol. The ichthus fish was. This was a cruel torture device. This is like wearing an electric... If you got a cross necklace on, awesome. I'm, I'm okay with that. But it's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. It's a torture device. Now, it's come to mean hope. But it's lost its original meaning. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, must take up his cross daily and follow me. And by the way, your husband or your wife is not your cross. They are not your cruel instrument of death. <laughs> but anyway... I digress. Sometimes I get fired up about things. That's why I have notes to come back and say, get back on track, preacher. Most of you, if I start going off on a, if I start going off on a rabbit trail, you just pray silently in your head, Lord, make him go back behind the podium. Because I'll come back here and look where I'm supposed to be. So anyways, church attendance all across the country, because it's the most important holiday, Easter is, church attendance swells. And I think in a lot of ways that's cool because it says we're doing something right. Right? We're realizing this is the pinnacle of it all. And, and so we're trying to include people. But shouldn't, shouldn't we have a faith that's bigger than Easter? Shouldn't we have a faith that's, that's bigger than one day a year? Shouldn't Easter just be a, a milestone along the journey? And not actually be the journey? Questions like I'm, I'm posing to you about this where, with this faith bigger than Easter's is why I believe that the author of Hebrews asks us to wrestle with some very, very serious things. And so I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles. This is going to be the last uh, Sunday that we look, at least for a long time, at Hebrews chapter 5, 11, verses 4. Uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 14, verses 11 through 14. We've been going over the same few verses for the last four sermons. This is the fifth sermon on the same passage. But I really think that this is what, I really think, church, that this is what the author of Hebrews is asking us to wrestle with. Here's what it says. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may be using a different translation. That's okay. They're all translations including the King James Version. Jesus didn't authorize the King James Version. King James did. <laughs> the Church of England did. And the King James Version, there's nothing wrong with it if that's your preference. But questions like this are part or what I think is being conveyed here. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For by this time, you ought to be teachers... You need someone else to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I want to draw your attention back specifically to verse 12a. That's the first half of verse 12. For though you by this time ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That's really what this fifth principle of discipleship has to do with. Is by this time you ought to be teachers. 
and yet it's, it's not happening. And again, I'm not making an accusation at anybody who's here. I'm simply saying this is what the author of Hebrews wants us to wrestle with. If an accusation is made at you today, would you let that be the Holy Spirit that does that and Jerry's not the Holy Spirit? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, in a lot of ways, I'm very happy that we get to move on from this passage of Scripture today because this is one of those that no preacher likes to preach to his congregation because, boy, it sounds like a a beatdown. And we just love you and we want to serve you. God, I believe that everybody's here today because they love you and they want to serve you. And so we ask that today you would transform our lives, literally transform our lives. That what Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come, would literally happen in our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. At OCCA, the last four weeks, we've been going over what this passage means for us as disciples. We've discovered several discipleship principles, and and each person seems to have agreed to these principles readily enough. The first principle is that a disciple submits to a teacher who teaches him or her how to follow Jesus. That's the first principle of discipleship, and we all agree to that readily enough. We all have to be learners somewhere. This passage mentions that we all need someone to teach us, right? I mean, it does. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you become dull of hearing. Uh, let's skip to 12, excuse me, let's skip to uh, 12b, or no, 12 again. For you ought to this time be teachers, but you need someone to teach you. Again, now, I know that that's te- talking about teaching again, but obviously somebody had to teach the first time, if we're going to teach again, right? So I think we all agree it, uh, on at least a basic level that there's to be people who are teachers of the Word of God. The second principle is that a disciple, when we learn, what are we learning? A disciple learns Jesus' words. And that's where those five levels of learning come in. Not rote learning, simply rote learning. Not recognition, not restatement. Not relation, but realization. Learning Jesus' words to the level that it actually transforms how we live. I mean, this seems like an obvious one, doesn't it? That we should be learning. Like if, if I'm going to say that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and the word disciple is the Greek word methetes, it's a dedicated learner of a particular teacher. So if I'm a dedicated learner, if I'm Jesus' disciple, if I'm dedicated to learning from my disciple, or excuse me, from my master, hmm, it would make sense that I would learn what he has to say. It's kind of obvious. But, I don't know. As I'm learning to realize it, what should I be learning? That's where the next principle comes in. A disciple learns Jesus' way of ministry. Now, it's really hard when you talk about this in this particular language, learning his way of ministry. It's kind of difficult. Because this is fairly obvious as well, in a lot of ways. I mean, I should learn how Jesus did things, right? But the part that's not so obvious about it is the learning the specific things that Jesus did is actually the next step. It's learning the how, not the what. It's that Jesus emptied himself out to be a servant. Jesus let dirty people touch him 
and defile him. Jesus let a woman who was unclean for 12 years touch him and be healed. Jesus reached out to lepers who were technically supposed to stay downwind from him so far, depending upon if the wind was blowing hard or not, how close they could get. And they came and they said, Jesus, Master, good Master, heal us. This, this leper came and said, heal me. You can do it if you will. And, and Jesus said, I will. And he laid hands on the guy. And instantly, by the, by the law, Jesus would have become unclean. Yet, interestingly enough, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus never sinned, not once, not ever. And so this ceremonial uncleanliness wasn't a sin. Guys, I gotta wonder as we go on today, and I gotta, I gotta really wrestle with this, and I gotta wonder what's going on inside the church in America. What's going on? I mean, I wasn't raised in the church. I mean, some of you have cars that are older than I am as far as being a believer goes. I've been a believer for 12 years and five days. I became a believer as an adult. I never got this whole, those people will defile us, we have to keep away from them. I was those people! And we want people to get cleaned up before they come in. I mean, I don't get it. Jesus was accused of being a sinner because that's all he surrounded himself with was sinners. Can I just in a moment of confession tell you the truth about me? You guys make me uncomfortable. I don't know how to act around you. You're church people. I didn't grow up in this. This wasn't, man, I learned how to act around lost people. I'm not saying everything I did around lost people is right. I'm just saying I don't know how to act around church people. I mean, Mark said this morning, he is risen, and everybody answered back, he is risen indeed. I, I, I don't get that. It's Christianese. Like nobody who hasn't been here for a long time knows that. It's insider lingo. Now, I'm not trying to beat you up for saying that. I mean, I understand it's a way that we're worshiping God and being excited. But you see my point? Like, how strange is it for me if I've never been? And, and the language just doesn't make sense to me. You know, these people are not defiling us. Paul goes actually really far inside of this. He says in one place, I become all things to all people that I might win some to Christ. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Gentiles or the heathens or the pagans, I became one of them. And I know some people are saying, ah, preacher, you're taking that too far. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Paul was walking up Mars Hill, friends. And he saw a false idol to an unknown God. And he said about that altar, that false altar to an unknown God, he said, what you guys claim as unknown, I declare to you. And then interestingly enough, he says, as one of your own poets has said, and all of a sudden, pagan literature is now scripture. <gasps> See, I, when I read the scriptures, I don't understand this whole, you know, these dirty people are going to defile us. I don't understand 
the whole, well, drugs have come to our area and, and so maybe we need to abandon the area. Or prostitution has come to our area, so maybe we need to abandon it. Or this has come to our area, that's come to our area. Now, I don't understand that. Because what I see Jesus doing is running to that. He's running to the people who are broken. He's running to the people who are needy. And the religious elite... By the way, when you were called a Pharisee in Jesus' time, it was not an insult. It was a compliment. Jesus is the one who turned it into an insult. They were the religious elite. Friends, they were the evangelicals. They were. Sadducees were the liberals. The Pharisees were the, were the conservatives. And it was the conservatives who sat there and said, if, if he knew who this filthy woman touching him was. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, said, Simon, this one person owes his master a lot. This other person owes him a little. Goes through this whole thing. Which one's going to love him more? He said, the one who was forgiven much. And he says, that's right. Because this woman has done this. And he, and he declares that the sinful woman who the religious elite said was defiling them was the one who was serving God, was the one who was close to the kingdom of heaven, was the one who was forgiven. Can, can we just for a second, as Christians in America, can we just for a second get off our high horse and then somebody please get a blowtorch and burn it while we're not looking so that we can't get back up on it again. We, we can't be self-righteous like this. If Jesus was friend of sinners, why are we not? We sing songs about it. And then a disciple imitates Jesus' life and character. This is what we discovered last week. And it kind of seems really obvious from the, from the passage out of verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Like that's, the, that's, that's going through and, and imitating his life and his character and living the way that he lived. Like doing the specific things that he did. You know, this is where we get into the nuts and bolts of how did Jesus pray. Jesus says, his disciples come to him and say, Master, teach us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray. And every word in Scripture is important. When you pray, pray this. Our Father, does this sound right to you guys? No, it's wrong. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He was giving an example. He wasn't saying pray this magic spell. He was saying pray recognizing that your father in he- of your Father in heaven, He's holy. Recognize whose presence you're coming into. He's holy. You know, all of the, the encounters in the Scriptures that we see where people encounter a holy God, do you know what they do? They fall down before Him. They cry out, Oh, I have seen God. I'm dead. And we're like, we're like this with the Father. And don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want us to be afraid of the Father. Uh, come here, Father. You're the Father. You're the Father for this. We're like, we're like okay, we're going to go sit, stand over there. 
and just raised this hand like this. We're like, okay, we're going to go meet the Father who's holy. Hey, what's up, dude? Sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt you. Sorry. She was like, I can't play guitar anymore. So anyways, I'm sorry I didn't mean to hit you that hard. But like, we approach him like, now look, he's our Abba, our daddy. Okay, I get it. I'm not trying to make you stuffy and religious. But I'm saying somewhere in there we got to remember this God is holy. we got to approach him in that. But then we also got to remember he's our daddy and he gives us grace. Thank God we don't live in the Old Testament times. We don't get stoned every time we do something wrong. Some of you are thinking, yes, we do. Look, put the... No, I'm just... I'm not even going there. Like two people got that joke. It's probably better that way. But we don't have to kill people every time they mess up. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, let he who is free, he said, cast the first stone. So we're never to kill people when they mess up. We're supposed to stop eating each other. Stop talking smack on each other, a.k.a. gossip. Stop running each other down. Recognize who God is. He's holy. And, and, and then say, you know, our Father who art in heaven... Holy is your name. Then we pray for his kingdom to come. His will be done. We pray like that. Jesus goes on and he teaches another parable right after that in one of, the, in one of those accounts. And he says it's like this. And he talks about going over to the neighbor's house. The guy goes over to the neighbor's house in the middle of the night, knocking on the door. Knock, knock, knock. Knock, knock, knock. Let me in. I got some friends that are coming. I need some bread. Goes through this whole thing over and over again. Jesus gets done with that parable and he says, hey, not because of his righteousness, not because of any other reason, but because he would not quit pestering the guy. He gave him the bread. How much more so if we're persistent in prayer? I mean, this is imitating his life and character, and I could preach about 50 million sermons on that. That's good enough. Let's move on. But then the last principle, and I want you to understand, I think principle two, three, and four are the ones that are most readily accepted. I know a lot of people who want to learn Jesus' words, who want to learn Jesus' way of ministry, and who want to imitate his life and character, yet they are not willing to submit. And then, if they're, one, if they're willing to submit, that's the next easiest one. Let me just prove my point about the not submitting thing. Every time somebody gets called out, I'm not saying at OCCA, but every time you hear about somebody getting called out in a church for some kind of inappropriate something or other, you can go, hmm, first thing that pops in our mind, what if they're going to leave because somebody called them out on what they were doing? I wonder if they're going to leave the church. I will tell you right now, many, many pastors do not call people out on sin because, when they, because their experience has been every time they told somebody, hey, that's sin, the person got mad and left. This is our lack of submission. And I got to be careful of myself too. So I'm not beating you up. I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying that's a problem in America. We, friends, this week as I was reading and, and studying, I was reading some stuff on, on values and, and leading and, and how an organization, a lot of organizations right now in our culture have the value of, of putting the customer's needs first because it's a saturated market. It's a buyer's market. And if the buyer doesn't like the, com- uh, the company, the buyer just goes to another company. 
friends, I said, how does this apply to the church? The church in America is a buyer's market. If the people don't like the message, they just go find another church. I would that every church in America would agree to preach the truth together. And then it would, then it would be back to the seller's market, which is God's market. It's His message, His truth. Ah, but that's a sermon for another day. So, here's the next one. A disciple goes and makes other disciples for Jesus. If we get you to do the first four, you know what I can't get people to do? I can't get them to go make other disciples. I cannot, I mean, me as a pastor, I try, I teach on it, I preach on it, and I say, Holy Spirit, come convict all of these things, and people just won't do it. Let me just read to you real quick, verse 12a. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the principles of the oracles of God. Who's he talking to? The church as a whole. We, we just like refuse to disciple anybody to this point. If I will dip my toe in the discipling water, I'm going to do it by getting a Francis Chan study. And really, Francis Chan's going to disciple you from California. And I'm just going to sit here and facilitate Francis Chan discipling you. And by the way, I'm not against Francis Chan. I'm not against using curriculums. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, as courageous as people get, they, they, people won't teach and disciple other people by what God has taught them. Christy McCandless and I were listening to a speaker from back in the 90s who was talking about the problem with discipleship back then is that we have put a seed substitute in place of the seed. Somebody else's study of the Word of God. And what they got out of it is now what we teach rather than going to the Word of God ourselves. Discipling someone on the most basic level is sitting down with them and saying, here's the scriptures that we're going to look at. And it needs to be lots. Not a verse. Most of the time, if you were looking at one verse, you were going to misinterpret it. The same thing with me. If I'm looking at one verse, I'm going to misinterpret it most of the time. I have to read the book that it's in. And I have to interpret it in light of the rest of the book that it's in. And in light of the rest of the Bible that it's in. Alright? So let me give you a prime example of this. As I talk about this discipling. Mark chapter 16 says that I can drink poison and handle deadly snakes. Somebody go get the rattlers and the arsenic, right? No! Because we know that that's out of context to go do that. But there are churches all over this country... They do it. They play with snakes and they drink poison. They forgot to read it in context. It didn't mean that in the passage and it certainly doesn't mean that in the canon of Scripture because Jesus tells us very clearly, we see Him talk to Satan when Satan tempts him to do something stupid and put himself in harm's way to prove that God was with him. Jesus said, you should not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus, our ultimate example, wouldn't do that. So why should we intentionally place ourselves in harm's way? Now, I don't think there's any snake handlers in here, so that's an easy example to use. 
And if you are a snake handler, so, but anyway, so let's look at this fifth discipleship principle a little bit deeper. A disciple goes and makes other disciples for Jesus. How does this link back to Easter service? How does this link back to this Sunday? We invite people to come to service with us on a special Sunday. We do it because we want them to know Jesus like we do. We love our family. We love our friends. We want them to experience, and say it with me, freedom, healing, and life. We want them to experience freedom, healing, and life. But, but, and it is a really big but. Inviting people to church on special holidays is not making disciples. This is one of those uncomfortable moments for the guests. Okay? If you're a guest today, we didn't make a disciple. And I just want to pause this something real quick. And this part is for the guests. As we talk about making disciples, understand, I don't think you're our project. I think one of the keys to making disciples, Jesus taught, and I was just telling Chrissy, our adult ministry coordinator, this this last week. Jesus discipleship with somebody was based out of his genuine friendship for them they weren't just notches on his gun belt like we gotta like the people we're discipling so i'm assuming that you're liked and that's why you were invited all right sermon back on inviting you here's not making you a disciple it's inviting you to an event Inviting people to events is the problem with Christianity in America as I see it. Maybe I'm wrong. But the events are not the journey. If I invite you to Milepole 24 on I-80, that is not the journey. That is a mile marker along the way. The events are not the destination. Heaven is the destination. And if you want to know what heaven looks like, stop reading the silly books and read the Bible. It will tell you. Okay. But heaven's the destination. The events are mile markers along the way. The journey is what we're involved with. The journey is what we're involved with. So how did we get into this inviting people as being that before i explain that i just want to point out again we're glad you're here today if you're a guest i'm not trying to make you feel bad for not coming here every week so please don't feel bad for not coming here every week it's totally cool you're a guest okay i'm primarily talking to those of us who have invited friends whether they showed up or not invited family whether they showed up or not I want you to realize that while the invitation to attend service is honorable, it's not the correct invitation. While the invitation to come to service is honorable, it is not the correct invitation. I want to say it one more time a different way so that we can all get this in our minds, at least of what I'm talking about, and you can wrestle with whether or not you agree with me. It's a good thing that you invite somebody to church but I think there's a better thing. We ought to aim for the better thing. Okay? 
the correct invitation, the better invitation, the invitation that we ought to aim for is to invite people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus that results in us being committed to growing disciples. This is one of those places where I pause and I want to specifically ask our guests to do something today. After service today, sometime either this afternoon or this week, I want you to look dead in the face of the person who invited you and say these words to them. The Bible says in Hebrews 5.12 that you ought to be a teacher by now. You've been a believer long enough. So would you please tell me what Jesus means to you and how I can become his disciple too? And if they suggest that you come and sit down with me and talk with me about it, I want you to reply this. You can write this one down. It is the job of every Christian slash disciple to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus. I don't know your pastor. He's noisy. He's fat. He's ugly. And I'm scared of him. I don't want to talk to him. I want to talk to you because I know you and I like you. Don't you like me enough to teach me about Jesus? See, I think the event-based Christianity is based on this passage of Scripture in 12a where it says you ought to be teachers by now, but somebody's got to teach you the basic oracles of God. And I think sometimes as pastors and church leaders, we facilitate this ridiculous Christianity, this version of Christianity that's not biblical, quite frankly. I know the fear comes in, but I, but I don't know everything. So, neither do I. Teach them what you do know. Can I just clue you in on something? I want to use Alyssa for this real quick. Can I? It won't be that embarrassing, I promise. Okay? Are you ready? What is the state flower of Arizona? She says, I have no idea. Did that hurt you to say I don't know? It's okay to say I don't know. It didn't hurt Alyssa. And I don't think Alyssa's dumb because she didn't know. I think somebody just told her what it was. Thank God I asked Melissa, not somebody else who was smarter than me. And by the way, girl, you could have totally bluffed me and said, oh, it's the blah, blah, blah. And I wouldn't have known. I'd have just been like. (laughs) So anyway, you see, my point is that we get afraid. We don't know. We get afraid of all these things. Listen, I had been, I got saved on April 15th of 2003. On September of 2002, I'm sorry, my wife is correcting me. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I got saved on April 15th of 2002. September 30th of 2002, I was installed as the associate pastor of Clarksville Alliance Church. On April 6th of 2003, we planted Crossroads Fellowship of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. On the last day of November... I guess it was 30 days in November. The 30th of November of 2010, we left Crossroads to go to Clarion. When we left, we planted a church with 11 people. I had been a Christian for less than a year. I don't recommend planting a church right away as being your step into discipleship. You could get start smaller, okay? But seven and a half years later, seven and three quarters years later, we went to Clarion, we went to Clarion and we left behind at that point a church 
that had between 250 and 300 people who called it their church home, and we were in a transient community with the military, people leaving every two to three years, and there were people who were getting out of the military and staying there to stay a part of the church. But if like the transient ones had all stayed, all the ones that called it their home, it'd be like a church of a thousand by now. I said, I don't know a lot. The senior pastor of that church got saved at that church, the senior pastor now. And he was a pothead and a bigot and a womanizer when he started coming to the church. And he's the senior pastor at this point. But just in case they won't tell you, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Jesus means to me. But they need to tell you what he means to him. Now, now understand something here. If you're religious, you're probably going to be done with me after today. Because my story is not a neat story in the sense of not messy. My story is really dicey to share with church people. But Jesus doesn't hold my story against me, so you can't either. Now, you can, but you can't. You see what I'm saying? When I was nine years old in Kansas City, Missouri, my parents put my sister and I on a church bus because the church had come around and asked about people and attending, you know, doing this bus ministry. And so my sister and I, for about a year, we rode the church bus to to, uh, First Baptist Church in Independence, Missouri. And while I was there, a Sunday school teacher used the wordless book on me. And when she got done explaining the colors of the wordless book, she said, do you want to pray this prayer to ask Jesus Christ into your heart so that you don't go to hell? Now, just to be honest with you, I I had zero understanding of the gospel. But she's like, do you want to do this? Rather than saying, what do you think God wants you to do? She said, do you want to do this? And she gave me a response. Man, I'm nine. Like, what am I going to say? Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Now, if you have a place in your theology for somebody to say a prayer and then like nothing actually changed in their life, I guess I was saved then. But when you hear the rest of my story, you're going to be like, nah, that dude wasn't saved. So I prayed this prayer. A friend of mine this last week asked this question. They said, you know, there's all these things happening in the book of Acts as we go along and all this stuff. And and why do you think it all happened and but we don't see that stuff happening now and we have to like go back and specifically teach about those things. We're talking about miraculous things, all that. And I was, we were wrestling with that and a buddy of mine that pastors over in Ridgeway, he and I were talking about it, wrestling with it. And he said, you know, I think what it is is that we preach a completely different gospel than they preached. We preach a pray this prayer and you'll get to go to heaven. They preached, submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and he'll come in and transform everything right now. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just wrestling through that. So it was an awesome question to be asked, and it's really challenged me to grow. But going back, so I pray this prayer. Nothing changes in my life. My parents, my dad gets transferred. He's a manager with the Union Pacific Railroad. He gets transferred to Wichita, Kansas. We get out there. We, we live in this little town called Mays, Kansas. It's a mile by mile. It's about seven miles northwest of Wichita. 
so it was kind of far enough out. My parents felt like they weren't in the city, but close enough that they could have the stuff that the city had. You know, good grocery stores, etc. All the things we don't have in Oil City. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. The only thing I wish we had different was a couple more restaurants, like a sushi bar. Amen? Can I get a witness? <laughs> All right. With that being said, with that being said, Jody and I are making a Wegmans run after service today. We love them. Anyways, Wegmans has good sushi, but I digress. So here I am, you know, I'm, I'm, we moved to Kansas City, or excuse me, we moved to Wichita, and we live in the Mays area. And I'm going to school, I'm being a part of that, I'm in fourth grade at this point. And just to be quite honest with you, man, my life is hell. I mean, it's, it's in Mays that I smoked pot the first time because I wanted to fit in. Like, the first time I smoked pot in Mays, Kansas, walking down, smoking it out of a pop can pipe, I'm not going to explain that for those of you who don't know, for those of you who do know, you know what it is. I didn't even know that I was supposed to hold my breath, you know. I just wanted to fit in so bad, right. But I was like this late bloomer, you know, and so I'm, I'm like, I'm this kid that's runty and embarrassed and, you know, all the other kids are, are becoming men and, and I'm not. I'm like the guy that, you, some of you have seen my senior picture this last week on Facebook because my wife so graciously put it up. I look like I'm, I look like I'm three, right? <laughs> so, anyway, but so we go through this whole thing, you know, and, and I'm living this lifestyle, and and so then my my eighth grade summer, I get ran over by a Chevy Monte Carlo, and I get drug 163 feet underneath of it. I don't recommend that either. An ex-girlfriend of mine, she didn't know, her mom didn't know that it was me, but she jumps out of a moving car on a 35-mile-an-hour street because she sees this guy getting ready to drag me out from his car on a side street, and she's a nurse, and she feels like, man, he could kill him by moving him. She jumps out of this moving vehicle. This mom does. Crazy. I think she, I think God was using her because had he moved me, he'd have killed me. My, my... Left collarbone was broken in the breastplate. It was clasped on my esophagus, my trachea, and my aorta. Razor-sharp, jagged edges laying on that stuff. They say the only reason I'm alive is because that woman jumped out of that car and said, do not touch him. I think that was God. I don't think she was God. I think that was God using her. So anyways, I, I, I actually, even though all this happens, they put me in a blood pressure suit, they suspend me from the ceiling of the ambulance so that there won't be any bumps on the way to the hospital and all this stuff. I still die three times in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And I'm telling you right now, had I died and stayed dead, I'd be in hell. There's no doubt in my mind. Because this didn't serve as a wake-up call to me. My, the, my parents were on the verge of divorce at this point. They got back together because of this tragic accident. And we bought horses. My dad always wanted a horse. He said, I'm tired, of, I'm tired of saving and all this stuff. I just want to start living. You know, we've got, we've got money. We've got these things. Just let's start living the life that we want to live now. And so we moved out to Leon, Kansas, 30 miles east of Wichita. I graduated high school with 56 people in my class. Some of you saw that senior picture. It's like, oh, Jerry was a cowboy. No, I was just trying to fit in. This went so far as I started riding bulls. And trust me, I don't even like it. I don't like it. I don't like rodeo. I did it to fit in. It was there at, at that high school that I, that I started transitioning from boy to man. 
And I started seeking validation inside of women. I'm not proud of what I'm getting ready to tell you. And I'm not going to be real explicit in this. You adults are going to have to think about this. I validated myself with well over 100 women. I'm not proud of that. If you've got room in your life for somebody to be a Christian and live that kind of life, then I guess I was saved. But I know I wasn't. I can tell you right now, my classmates that I went to high school with are blown away that I'm the preacher. I go away to college and I joined a cult. And some of your sons and daughters have done the same thing. And I know that some of you are going to disagree with what I'm getting ready to say and it's going to really hurt you when I say this. I'm not trying to hurt you. But if there's a secret ritual involved, it's a cult. If I had a secret ritual for here, you guys would say it's a cult. It's the same thing when you go to to college. I joined the largest male cult on the face of the planet for college. Sigma Phi Epsilon Fraternity. I have a tattoo on my back, a skull and crossbones superimposed over a heart. It is the death penalty that I've agreed to undertake if I divulge to you the secrets of Sigma Phi Epsilon. Sounds like a cult, doesn't it? If I tell you that Sigma Phi Epsilon stands for holy friendship forever, that's what their letters stand for. I am supposed to be killed now by the guys that, I, that are also part of Sig Ep. Friends, that's a cult. Okay? I'm just being straight up with you. It's the doorway to Freemasonry. And if you're a Freemason, I'm not trying to pick on you. The, the, the senior pastor of Crossroads Fellowship, who was a pothead and all that stuff, he was also a Mason. But secret ritual that you can't tell other Christians about, something's wrong there. And, but I didn't realize it. I mean, I thought it was a boys club. I didn't realize it until Jesus set me free and I was looking back later on going, whoa, that was weird. In my ritual, when I, when I went through my initiation ritual, there were ice-cold chains out of a bucket of freezing cold water that were hung on me. One of my fraternity brothers took a sword about the size of that one hanging right there, took the flat of the blade and as hard as he could, smacked it across my chest where the flat of the blade hit. They released a quick-release chain in the, on the chains in the back and Sigma Phi Epsilon set me free, according to them. But it didn't, friends. A lot of those hundred people were while I was in college and beyond. I was the guy that you didn't want to be around because I was a scrawny little kid who got beat up so much and I figured out I was smart so I'd use my brain to hurt you. And like I've told some of you before, when you didn't understand, it made it even better. When you didn't realize that I was beating you down with my intellect, it was all the better. Because you weren't even smart enough to realize I was schooling you. I was like Vicini. Never match your wits with a Sicilian, especially when Dexter's on the line. Right? You know, I was proud of that. That's right, it's inconceivable. But, you know, this is my life. 
I went away and, and I got tired that freshman year of living off of SpaghettiOs because I was rodeo and trying to fit in. Tore my rotator cuff slightly in rodeo practice at, and all this stuff in college. I mean, I was competing in college-level athletics. I had a peer pressure to fit in. You know, that's pretty hardcore, I guess, when you go to college and compete in college-level athletics just so you can have friends. But I go through all of this. I join the Army. My wife finally decides to marry me. And boy, did I honor her by having nine physical affairs in the course of the first few years of our marriage. I'm not proud of that at all. Somewhere along the line in 1996 while I was in the army, you know, I was clinging to that. I prayed this prayer when I was nine years old, and so I must be a Christian. And if you'd asked me, I'd have told you I was a Christian, even though there's nothing in my life that looks like it. You know, it was all about me. My drinking was all about me. There was times that I used drugs while I was in the army. Stupid, because you get caught once, that's it. You get a dishonorable discharge from the military. That kind of wrecks your life. You might as well be a felon almost. But anyway, so we go on, and, and we, we actually help plant a church in Sierra Vista, Arizona, called Life in Christ Church. But I didn't even know Jesus. I knew about him a little bit, but I didn't know him. While we're at this church, I get convicted that I should tell my wife about the affairs. I say something to the pastor, and he says something that I've heard pastors say over and over and over again. Don't tell her. Listen, if, you're, if your God is convicting you to tell your spouse something, tell them. Don't listen to your preacher. Listen to your Jesus. He's smarter than your preacher. Okay? But I don't tell her. And in fact, we run the opposite way. Look, I told her eventually about some of the affairs once I got saved. But I didn't tell her about all of them because the little bit that I told her was hurting her. I was a pastor when she found out about all of them. I was a pastor of a church when she found out about all of them. We're laying in bed one night. And by the way, the Lord had been convicting me. They were all things that were before Jesus. There was nothing active going on then. There was nothing active that had happened since I'd become a believer. But I still had the secret. And the Lord was convicting me. Tell her, tell her, tell her, tell her, tell her. We're laying in bed one night. She rolls over to me out of the clear blue sky and goes, hey, have you ever had any other affairs on me besides the ones you've already told me about? Now I've got to choose to tell her what God has been prompting me to tell her for years or lie. That was a tough night. But that was after Jesus. So I'm laying there on an operating room table while I'm in the Army still at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. They, it's the second shoulder reconstruction I've had. They put a nerve block in my neck, and in the process of doing that nerve block, they paralyzed my diaphragm. I'm laying on an operating room table dying. I'm, what, I'm listening to my oxygen saturation go down into the low 80s. People, that's deadly when your O2 sat is down in the, in the 80s. And I'm down in the low 80s. I'm laying there on the table, and I'm dying, and I know that I'm dying. And I said to God, God, I'm dead. I know I'm dead. Unless you do something. I don't want to die. My wife, she, she's not even in the room. She doesn't want me to die. I can tell you that. My kids, I want to raise them and all those things. And if you will let me live, 
I'll do whatever you want for the rest of my life. Now, I wasn't bargaining with God. I know that a lot of times people try to bargain with God. Do this for me and I'll do this for you. I wasn't. I was just telling him, I'm dead. You got me. You got me. But if you let me live, I'll serve you forever. You ask my wife. Don't ask me. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I came out of that room transformed. Within a couple of weeks when my pastor asked me if I'd ever considered becoming a pastor, I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. I've since wrestled with people, so many people, so many pastors, so many Christian leaders are in the pastorate. And I wonder, are they in the pastorate because God called them to be a pastor? Or are they in the pastorate because God called them to disciple somebody and they said, well, that's only pastors that do that, so I have to go be a pastor. You know how many times I've sat with teenagers who've responded at missions conference, come forward, tears, oh, God's called me to serve him overseas. How do you know? Oh, he's called me to be holy and all this stuff. And we're like, no, that's everybody's calling, kid. Everybody's called to be holy because I'm holy. Everybody's called to make disciples. Maybe Jesus is calling you overseas, but, uh, you know, their whole thing is, well, he can't be calling the ordinary people to do this. That's the extraordinary people who do that. God didn't even call a guy who was equipped, though, friends. I had zero theological education. I got licensed in the Christian and Missionary Alliance on the strength of my call alone. They could not deny that God had called me. And they said, this is going to be really interesting to watch. And it's been a weird journey. This is just in case for our guests today, just in case your friend won't tell you what Jesus means to them. Listen, he means everything to me. In him we live and breathe and have our being. That's even lost people. Nothing exists that wasn't made by him and for his glory. That includes lost people. That includes people who don't know Jesus. I don't understand, and I'm just being honest with you, church family, I don't understand these people who say that they come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, but nothing changes. Because when I really came to know him, everything changed. I'm not saying I got perfect all of a sudden in the sense of all my actions, but I'm saying everything changed. If there's no difference in your life, if you prayed a prayer and there's no difference in your life, I just want you to wrestle with whether or not you actually got saved. I'm not accusing you of not being a Christian. I'm saying ask the Holy Spirit. He's smart. He knows stuff. He'll tell you. Tells us that in James. If any of us lacks wisdom, let us ask God who gives that wisdom. Right? Ask Him. If nothing changed, I got to wonder, did anything change? If you're still the same old person, then what Paul says to the Corinthian church, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's just not true. That's only true for like the elite few. But friends, I think what we've done inside of the church in America is we've made abnormal Christianity normal. We've made nominal Christianity normal. I'm a Christian because mama was. I'm a Christian because daddy was. I'm a Christian because my grandma was. You know, I'm a Christian because, well, I just claim that I'm a Christian. But nothing's changed. That's called nominal Christianity. 
There are a lot of people who would tell you America is a Christian nation, but friends, it doesn't look very Christian. It's called nominal Christianity. But the ones who God literally transforms their life and they become Christians, it's interesting the thing about them. They don't have to tell anybody they are. They're the ones that are looking at others going, you're telling me you have faith. I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. Let me tell you something. I know this guy right here, Jeff Brown, is a believer. Because yesterday, and, and I'm not saying that you have to do this for me to know you're a believer, but yesterday, Jeff went out there and served God by serving our community, by working on a baseball diamond that he didn't have to work on. Something's different. Jeff's story, Jeff used to be in it for Jeff. His story's a lot like mine. Probably a lot like everybody's who got saved. They were in it for themselves. But Jeff's in it for other people now. I mean, I could go around and point at different people. I'm just going to use Jeff as an example because that's the quickest one. But friends, you've got to ask, what does Jesus mean? It is the job of every Christian slash disciple to go and to spread the gospel of Jesus. Listen to me. Disciples, go and make other disciples for Jesus. If you're not making other disciples for Jesus, are you a disciple? As you ask yourself that question, as you wrestle with it this week, I want you to to look at these passages of Scripture. Monday, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Tuesday, Mark 16, 14 through 20. Wednesday, Acts 1, 6 through 11. Thursday, Romans 10, verses 5 through 17. Friday, Mark 6, 7 through 13. And Saturday, Mark 13, 3 through 13. You can take a picture of it if you want to. They'll put it on the church website. For those of you who are guests, you may be wondering today, why am I doing this? I do this every week. Because I don't want you to believe me. I told you Jesus is smarter than me. I want you to go read his word and see what his word says. I don't want to be the seed substitute. There's the seed. See if this is what God's word says. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. And as the band comes this morning after I pray, we're going to have a little bit of an altar call. So if you could do a little bit tamer song than what you're planning for the beginning, just maybe an instrumental or something, and then we'll go into the other one. Okay? So let's pray. Father, there are many here today who need to know you. Maybe they're not physically in our presence, but they're in our city. They're in our county. They're in our country. They need to know you. And you're calling us to be the disciple makers. You're calling us to go out there and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And, and Lord, conversion is a step along that journey. Sometimes conversion happens first, but Lord, I think a lot of times they become a disciple learning about you before they ever convert to becoming a Christian. And for some people, it's really fast they convert. And other people, it takes a while. Lord, give us the courage and the strength, the intestinal fortitude to disciple people, to walk through this journey with them. 
Lord, to quit inviting them to a destination, though the destination's awesome, to quit inviting them to the, to the, to the, to the mile marker along the road, but Lord, to invite them on a journey of being a disciple of yours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.